All right, hello, beautiful humans, and welcome to another conversation at the Bitcoin Stoa. As a reminder, the Bitcoin Stoa is a community-funded platform, so if you enjoy listening, you can support the project by sending some sats to the QR code on the homepage at bitcoinstoa.com, and you can also stream sats using something like the Breeze app, which has a really badass podcast feature. Current Moscow time is 17.31 at 7.10.313, and with that said, today I am stoked to have a conversation with one of my neighbors who will go by Nick for this conversation and who's carved out some of his time this afternoon to have a conversation about Bitcoin. And I think realistically, this conversation would have happened regardless whether we were recording or not, but I figured it would be a great one to post to the STOA um, and sort of a good example of what an informal conversation between two people um, can possibly look like. And for context, I connected with Nick a while back uh, and was really struck by how... um, deeply informed and rational and logical your, your thinking was. That was really like what struck me. And so obviously I brought up Bitcoin at some point and uh, you know, we haven't had, this is probably our first significant conversation on the topic. Would you agree? This one? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. I mean, we talked about it. We didn't go crazy deep into it. My yeah. knowledge on it is limited, but I think you'll remember I compared it essentially to gold. Yeah. So, uh, which I, th- I think is good. And so, you know, yeah, I, I've, we may as well just dive right into it. And um, so would you say that you're still starting out in terms of learning about Bitcoin? Oh, completely. Okay. Absolutely. Good. And these, these conversations actually, you know, it's, it's always bi-directional flow because your questions help me learn a lot about like what are people's perceptions of Bitcoin? Um, and I also just love talking to smart people about Bitcoin because you're, you know, following a methodological process of understanding this and bringing up valid, um, skepticisms, I think is very important. And sometimes it's, you know, I started learning about this like eight years ago. So sometimes it's easy for me to forget what were my initial skepticisms. And also it's a totally different world now in terms of Bitcoin and the world we live in. So I'd love to start by you giving us maybe a little bit of background context of, um, when you first heard about Bitcoin, if you can remember that, your first impressions and sort of where you're at right now in terms of your understanding, and we can unpack that a little bit more, but just give people context as to like, where are you coming from? And maybe even a little background, bit of background info about without saying what you do for work, like what kind of work do you do? And maybe that sort of rubs off on how you think of things. So. All right. Uh, <laughs> that was a mouthful. Like a whole bunch of questions. Let's work with that. Uh, I'll start with uh, my work. Uh, technically, I work in IT at this point, so you would think I would know more about this subject than I probably should. Um, but uh, frankly, I started this career not too long ago, so I'm pretty fresh into the IT world. But I would describe myself as a jack of all trades and thus a master of none. Perfect. So I have a background in uh, physical and health education. I did not take care of my body because reasons, and uh, <laughs> kind of traveled across the country, across uh, North America for all a variety of different ventures. As far as uh, when did I hear about Bitcoin, I couldn't really tell you, but it's kind of like this. It existed. It was worth whatever people said it was. Sure. And then people said, it doesn't have anything behind it. Nothing's backing it. Like fiat currency, there's nothing behind it. And then it went up, and then it was another sum of money, and then it disappeared, and it came back, and then it was another sum of money, and then a handful of years later, and here we are now. So as far as I can tell, it's worth uh, a few dollars. Uh, a few dollars more than it was worth before. So if I would have purchased when I first knew about it, I think I would have had enough money to buy a couple, maybe, maybe even a, a couple of hundred. Hmm. That would have been amazing. <laughs> I would have been, uh, I think I would have been a, a several hundred in air. 
whatever yeah. that translates into. Yeah. But seriously, um, I purchased a, a small quantity uh, several years ago, and uh, it was on the, it was uh, going up in value pretty quickly. But I hit a couple of obstacles. I purchased a VPN service. I tried to buy Bitcoin through I forget which service online, through Iceland, hmm. and my credit card got blocked. Uh, my bank wouldn't permit it. They considered it a quasi currency. And so they wouldn't let me purchase it. So had I been able to buy some at that point, I would have effectively had doubled the amount of Bitcoin I have now. So a little frustrating with my timing. The point is that you have some. I think that's very important. And um, yeah, I think this whole notion, and we can dive into that if you want, of Bitcoin being backed by nothing is really, uh, it's not an informed perspective. And oh, no, I, 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 sorry to interrupt you. I don't think that it's backed by nothing. Gotcha. But that that's was what the, impression. the notion was. Yeah. Yeah. And the problem is it's a deep rabbit hole to go down to understand what is Bitcoin backed by, right? Like there's no one word answer. It's not like, oh, you can say it's backed by energy, which is true, but like that doesn't mean anything to people. Like what is energy? What do you mean by energy? How does it convert energy into Bitcoin? Like, And it's really easy to fall off the wagon and be like, fuck this. It's too complicated. I'm not going to learn about it. It's easier for me to think that it's some weird trendy thing that's going to collapse at some point than it is for me to actually put my time and energy into understanding it. Um, and that is almost built into the protocol where it's like, you really only put a sizable amount of your money into Bitcoin if you actually understand it. Um, what were you, what was your biggest, I guess, what was your most memorable skepticism? Oh, oh so I'm a big fan of Ron Paul. And so my first instinct was, well, there's nothing behind it. And so there's no reason for me to have any faith in it. And that was my biggest skepticism because if it's not tangible, then what can I do with it? I mean, with paper, paper money, I mean, at some point I can at least wipe my ass with it. And at one point <laughs> we were able to burn it and now we can't yeah. even burn it. So what am I supposed to do with this intangible abstract concept that may or may not do something at some point in the future? Sure. Yeah. The abstract nature of it, this, this dematerialization of the physical to the digital is, um, is a hard one for people to wrap their heads around, especially older people, like especially <laughs> with like someone like, you know, who I've respect for a long time, like Warren Buffett, who is like, a really sound thinker. But when you get someone like that, who understands how to value something that is, um, that doesn't interact with technology, like he doesn't even have a computer at his desk. So for him to understand and grok Bitcoin is a little bit far fetched. Yeah. It'd be like trying to take advice from, uh, about finance from someone who doesn't use money. It's like probably not the best resource. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the skepticisms are important, right? Like we should all innately be skeptical because everyone is out to steal our money these days, right? Everyone's out to convince you you need this thing um, or to usher you to basically giving them your money. And so I think skepticism is good. The fact that Bitcoin isn't even something that you can physically hold uh, is a massive barrier for a lot of people. Um, but let's go back to gold. So what, what similarities, I guess, did you find between gold and Bitcoin based on your current understanding? And then maybe we can talk about like what actually makes something valuable? Like what makes something valuable? That's a, that's a fundamental question most people I, I don't think understand. Um, yeah. Finally, a simple thing I can quantify. <laughs> well, let's see, gold, it, you actually have to pay someone to look for it. You have to actually pay someone to dig down into the earth. You actually need to use technology. You have to refine the technology to do it. You have to pay someone to go down there. You have to run electricity down there. And you literally go down several kilometers in some instances. So this is really simple. It's there. You can only re, you can only pull so much out of the ground, and you have to pay someone to do it. And so you can literally quantify it to some extent or another. 
Uh, it's a limited resource. I did a quick search today just for my own, um, my own purposes. There's something approximately 200,000 tons, I believe, of gold in the world. Now, assuming my numbers aren't wrong, and even if it was wrong, it doesn't matter. It's a finite quantity, and we're only adding to it so much every year. So we, we know how much we have. More so it's relatively finite, relatively yes, scarce. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's relatively, I mean, hundreds of thousands of tons is still our sum. Sure. But compare that to paper. Sure. I mean, uh, how much gold is there in relation to uh, Canadian dollars or American dollars or pick any country, uh, Zimbabwe, for example. Right. So it's very easy to compare the difficulty to manufacture paper money or fiat currency versus gold. Right. And Bitcoin has uh, a, a, a limit of how much there are. Um, and there seems to be an upper limit to how much there will be. And so as a consequence, you, you can't, it, it, it addresses the fundamental problem of fiat currency is you just can't print it. Yeah. And uh, its inherent value should uh, consistently go up, which I'm a big fan of. Yes. Number go up tech is good. And, you know, all the while that you're talking about all the things that go into gold, you need to access the technology. You need to pay someone to go down there. You need to pay for the energy to extract it. Like to me, that's all wrapped into a concept in Bitcoin known as proof of work, right? right. Gold is scarce. There's only a certain amount of it. Um, you know, why is gold more expensive than copper or iron? Because there's way less gold available to us. Um, so it's relatively scarce, more scarce in relative terms than all the other precious metals. Which, and, and it also has other elements, elements right? It's durable. It's divisible. Uh, you have a lot of properties built into gold that make it a good form of money. The primary one of which is scarcity. If you can't, if you don't get into the money game, uh, you, the only way you can get into the money game is with scarcity. That's the cost of admission. And like you said, the fiat money, paper money that people can create with zero work involved or cost involved is not scarce because by that nature, you can create as much of it as you want. And the only reason that we see it having value is because we're told that's what we need to use in terms of our medium of exchange, right? You're, you're for, like guns force you to use Canadian dollars, essentially. Oh, I, I need no convincing on that. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's illegal to, to trade in uh, precious metals anyways, but that's a, a side topic. Yeah. And, you know, some of the limitations of gold. So you're right. Bitcoin has a finite amount. It's 21 million. That's which, what my research told me this morning. There you we're, go. We're up to what, 18 and a half million? Something like that. Yeah. So we, there's not very many to go, but it tapers off until like 2140 is when the last Bitcoin will be mined. So it's, it tapers off in a very big way. A lot of it, it was front loaded where a lot of them went out in circulation initially, um, rewarded the early adopters, and then it tapers out um, to 21 million. And so the absolute scarcity of Bitcoin, where like we can for sure say, that 21, there will be a hard cap limit of 21 million Bitcoin units of this token um, forever is, I think that is the fundamental invention of Bitcoin is digital scarcity, true digital scarcity, right? Because until that, until now, it's like, or until Bitcoin was created in 2009, if you sent me something, a picture, sent me a document, all I have to do is right click and click copy and I can copy it infinite amounts of times. So scarcity in the digital realm is extremely difficult to achieve. Um, and I think that is the fundamental invention of Bitcoin because before then we didn't have a way to do that. And that was the sort of like the hardest problem. One of the hardest problems to solve with creating digital money is how do you make it so that people can't just create it out of nowhere and copy it? Um, and yeah, but I think the similarity of gold to Bitcoin, there's a lot of similarities there. You're literally calling it mining. Yeah, 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 exactly. And there's a lot of metaphors, I think, that were created in the world of Bitcoin that are abs that are sort of supposed to be tightly aligned with um, current examples, right? Like a wallet. 
is not a physical thing in Bitcoin. It's a, it's an app that you have on your phone, but it's called a wallet because it's a way that you can hold your money. Um, mining, you have to expend energy and technology and better time. graphics cards, better processors. Exactly. And so I think the proof of work nature that like anyone can mine Bitcoin, but there's an inherent, there's an unforgeable costliness and an inherent energetic cost, both your energy, um, but also like actual energy um, that's been created somehow, generated somehow, that must go into that. And that's, that's kind of your ticket to get into the lottery of maybe winning some Bitcoin. So it's not even guaranteed, but essentially anyone can do it. You need to have massive resources to do it. You can only do it if you expend resources and then that gets you a lottery ticket to potentially winning Bitcoin every 10 minutes when a block's mined. Um, And yeah, it's a very interesting thing. People just don't, I think the biggest thing people don't understand is the money we use day to day. So there's no context to understand Bitcoin, right? If you talk about, well, there's actually a cost associated to produce Bitcoin. They're like, well, isn't our cost associated to making $8? It's like, well, other than the muscular energy of clicking a keyboard button once, there's no energy required. So what are your thoughts on money as, as it exists today? Like Canadian dollars. <laughs> Let, let's just... I can't we, believe we're still using it. I mean, is this stuff even worth anything? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, well, I mean, I just take the, the simple perspective that uh, we're printing it. And we're, I don't believe we're even acknowledging how much of it we're printing. The average person, if they even are aware of our exist, uh, the country's existing year-to-year deficit or it's uh, accumulated um, debt, uh, the average person simply doesn't know when. And if you tell them we ran a 20 or 150, $200 billion deficit, what does that even, what do people even think that means? Like, sure. What are we getting out of that? And that's just a deficit. How much of it do we borrow and from who and at what cost and on top of that how much are we actually printing so the the numbers for that are i don't know how to calculate them i don't think the average person knows how to calculate them but it doesn't instill any confidence uh, whatsoever i mean just look at the housing prices in canada in the last uh, six months a year 10 years Um, the idea that our our parents could have bought a um, um, a decent home for you know whatever the cost was at the time and to have a double, triple, quadruple, quintuple, that's where there's no way that the average person is going to buy a house in 2021, uh, approaching 2022, and have a double. Yeah. And that, if anything, is the a perfect in indicator of inflation. It's not that your money's worth more or that your house is worth more. It's just that there's more dollars to go around and what's more valuable. Well, houses and properties are pretty valuable. Yeah. So from my perspective, the dollars, I mean, it's just a question of time before that goes away. Uh, if you look at international... Uh, relations, uh, how the banking system works, which I, I'm not going to pretend that I know how the banks actually work, but I'm aware that through uh, the banking system, which, jeez, oh, how far back in history we go. <laughs> like, uh, once the Second World War was over, the, the powers that be had to get together. I believe they had the Bretton Woods Convention, and they kind of agreed on how things were going to go. So... How is it that the United States can sanction Russia or Iran? How is it that some places can literally freeze assets and bank accounts of individuals? You would think that moving money around would be as simple as moving money around. It's, I mean, you either move a pallet of money or you move numbers electronically from one bank to another. Which should intuitively be simple and frictionless. And in the age of information with the internet, when I can send you an email in one second for free, if you look at ledger entries on a page... Uh, of a central database, it's like the marginal cost of sending you an email is mm-hmm. the same as the marginal cost of changing uh, a ledger in a database. 
in theory, right? It's just like zapping a piece of information across these communication lines. But, you know, we live in an informational 21st century and we live in a financial uh, 18th century, (laughs) you know, and it's like it hasn't caught up. Yeah. Uh, And I think part of it is just there's so much control, right? So there's no, you know, information technology advances because companies are incentivized to create better technologies. That's how they gain their competitive advantage. Banking is under full control of the nations. They're not incentivized to do things better. They're actually incentivized to just maintain their hard, hard control on everyone in their country and their currency. And it's like when you have an unlimited ability to create as much money as you want, even if that's created simply to keep you in power, despite you essentially harming everyone else in the country, that's what's happening. And it's, you know, you talk about housing prices increasing drastically you know, that, w- that would be a different story if everyone's salaries were increasing at the same rate, right? Where it's like, okay, a house is four times as much, but you're making four times as much in your salary. So yeah. it's like, you know, I, I don't think, I still think it's fucked up that we live in such an inflationary world. Technology is fundamentally deflationary. It makes things cheaper over time. Except Our, whatever the government touches, which <laughs> happens to be money in this case, and education, medicine. Yep. Everything. Everything it touches. <laughs> Yeah, I've started to look at the government as just the biggest uh, corporation with the most guns. Well, it's 100% a, how do you say, um, centralized, monopolized use of violence. I mean, you yeah. literally use the, you said it's enforced with guns. Yeah. I mean, that's what, uh, that's what a monopoly of violence is, is if you don't do this, we have the authority to do this and there are no consequences. Right, and there's no accountability. And well, if we... If I printed any amount of money, it's called counterfeiting money. Sure. But the government does it and it's called inflation. <laughs> well, it's not yeah. called inflation, but we're inflating the, the, yeah. the monetary supply. Yeah, it's called uh, a quantitative easing well, or that's, that's stimulus. The US. That's in the U.S. I don't know if we're calling it that in Canada, but uh, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, I like euphemisms. It's beautiful. Like, how do you say you're getting fucked without telling someone you're fucking them? <laughs> I like that. Yeah, you just let the prices of all the shit go up and you pretend like you have godly wisdom like money is such a base layer of communication. Imagine the government said, all right, every month we're going to change the English language. Guess what would happen? People would not be able to communicate with each other. Oh, I mean, that's already happening, but <laughs> you're right. You're right. That's another tangent. But no, you're, you're completely right. If, it, if it's constantly changing, then it's just, it's causing issues. Yeah. Like you, you gave me uh, some water uh, and thank you very much. You're welcome. In a society where the rules change rapidly, I wouldn't accept water for any reason at all, like whether I trust you or not. Sure. So if I give you money and the rules on money change at any point, whether that's rapidly or slowly, well, that's simply not fair. Sure. Like who's to know what's happening at any point? I mean, like the average person doesn't know how much money we're we're running as a deficit and the average person doesn't know how much we're paying on interest and the average person doesn't know how much we're printing or like, I don't know. Yeah. But if the average person doesn't know, then how are they supposed to know that they're being manipulated or taken advantage of? Yeah, and every day you have to make decisions that depend on a stable understanding of money, right? When you go buy when you go buy a fruit at the supermarket, you have to have an understanding of money such that you can value that fruit. And if they're charging too much, not buy it. If they're charging very little, maybe buy more. But if the fundamental language of value is constantly getting manipulated uh, without us understanding that that's the case or what the implications are, then it's more difficult to coordinate us, right? And when, you know, like I'm amazed... Um, how much we take for granted, how insanely complex our societies have become. If you go to a grocery store, 
there are millions and millions of humans that had to coordinate to allow us to go to the grocery store and have hundreds of thousands of products available. And I remember Parker Lewis, who's um, a big guy in the world of Bitcoin, talked about how just to create one wooden pencil takes a million people to coordinate. And I was like, okay, Parker, you're, are you fucking high right now? There's no, how does it, no. <laughs> but then he gets into it and he says, well, you need lead. So you need to extract the lead from the planet. So you need machinery to extract the lead. You need a refinery to process the lead. Someone had to make every single part that goes into that machinery. Someone had to extract the raw crude oil from the ground and refine it into gas to put into the truck. So you work all the way down and you're like, even the dude that built the tools or dudette that built the tools that were used to cut down the tree. Like if you really extrapolate, we have access to things so conveniently that require mass coordination and mass coordination at scale done well, efficiently requires a stable communication language of value. So when you fuck with that language, you fuck with our ability to, commu- to coordinate. And it's like supply chain issues, quote unquote, are obviously going to happen if you're constantly manipulating the language we speak together. Yeah. yeah so it's like super weird. I, I'm with you. Uh, we talked about this before, so it's, it's in line to have this conversation now. We need some form of stability when it comes to our monetary policy, period. Uh, I, I espouse this uh, via older ideas, uh, and it's still true now, whether that's with uh, Bitcoin or anything. Uh, the same idea stands true. Now, I mean, maybe this would be less relevant with Bitcoin if our inflation was, uh, our inflation target was, I don't know, half a percent or less, and we actually hit that target, then sure. know, people would be having a different discussion. But, uh, I mean, in this day and age... Uh, looking at uh, double-digit inflation and all kinds of uh, parts of, uh, well, I mean, in Canada, dairy and eggs and things like that are going to be that much. At least that's a prediction for 2022. So yeah. 10%, I mean, woo. Yeah. Did you get a 10% raise? Because I didn't. Well, I mean, I got, I got <laughs> lucky in the last few years and I got maybe a couple of decades of promotions, but nice. it's going to taper off at one point or another. <laughs> and not everyone's in that situation. No, I think, no, absolutely not. I think one of the fundamental problems too is our... our you know, this illiteracy that's associated with wh- how we think of money, mm. which I think is like, what other things are the, health and money are the two most important things in my opinion to learn about. Those are the two most relevant things to live a good life when you're older. Um, time is the most valuable resource. Yeah. Time is only valuable with health. If you don't have health, time is actually a burden. So if time is our most valuable resource, Time is only valuable with health. Health becomes our most valuable resource. And money is the way that we essentially tokenize our time and energy. And in order to be healthy, you need to actually be able to allocate energy to the process of achieving health. And so money and health, fundamental, two things we don't learn about in school. Basically learn nothing about it. I, I, I did a master's in physiotherapy. I learned nothing about health, even at that level. Oh, the irony. Oh, the irony. And so I think the fact that we don't understand money, how it's created gives an unfair asymmetry of information such that we're easily taken advantage of and fooled. And inflation is a perfect example of this. We just did a podcast last Sunday about inflation for a show that we do called School of Coin. And we're just talking about the ridiculousness of the CPI, Consumer Price Index, which is the most popular way that inflation, quote unquote inflation, gets communicated to us. And you know this whole notion that essentially the government's choosing an arbitrary basket of goods that gives them whatever number they want to tell us. 
Do they get to change what's in that basket of goods to get the numbers they're looking for? They do. Oh, well, that's amazing. How convenient. Yeah, how convenient and how fucked up and how blatantly obvious it is that we're being fooled, but it works. And so this whole thing, it's like, okay, your inflation metric is based on a basket of goods that you, of, of goods, services, and assets you wish to acquire. My inflation metric is the same thing, but my subjective reality. We might live different realities, right? Inflation might be 4% if you never want to own a house, if you don't have energy costs, if you don't have a car, if you don't pay for gas, if you don't pay for food, great, your inflation's like 2%. Good luck surviving, you know? It's like, what, what are we even talking about anymore? Oh, what kind so, of person are you describing at this point? A dude that lives in his parents' basement, gets his meals cooked, doesn't pay for utilities, pays for Netflix, beer, and like, I don't even know. Like, maybe that's it. <laughs> I'm going to refrain from cracking jokes on uh, my favorite, <laughs> my best friends around the world. You guys are great. Keep it up. Don't, don't leave. I'm just kidding. You guys really need to get your shit together. Yes. But my point is like, we just, we literally just get fooled in broad daylight. Yeah, in, for sure. And it's all based on our, on the fact that we know nothing about money. Completely agree. Before, and, uh, yeah. before I went back to school in IT, I was literally in the system, in the education system in Ontario to go teach in the French system. So I was well on my way to do so. Uh, I have a bunch of family that do teach. Um, I have a little bit of international experience teaching as well. So it's in my blood. I'm, I'm used to it. And I really wanted to go into this because something I believe. But I, I couldn't hack the, the, the process of certification because it's incredibly politicized. Yeah. So, yeah, we don't teach about money. And, I mean, we do teach about health to some extent. But, I mean, how talk about health we'll stick on we'll stick to money for now <laughs> health is my wheelhouse we can talk about it all day if you yeah. want yeah oh, sure uh but um, i really want to talk about taxes because it's important and that's related to money but uh no there's there's no room for that and so it's very deliberate yeah. in my opinion you can't you can't have a top-down educational system and give all these things about history math what have you but omit the entire tax system <laughs> or money altogether i mean you really want to uh, control the masses just don't talk about money. Yeah. Don't let that, don't ever give them a chance to find out about money. Yeah. yeah. And then bury them under debt when they're done school. So they have to get That's to work right. and they can't even have the time to figure out about money. Yeah. Imagine you invest all this time, all this money into post-secondary education. You may or may not find a job. And then if you just had any of that money invested in anything with any amount of return, you would have compound ret returns over however long you decide to invest that. Yeah. Wow. You remove that from people at the youngest time in their life when well, not their youngest, but early on in their career. Oh, that's brutal. Good luck getting out of that. And then you can't even default. Yeah. I mean, we don't, we're never given an understanding of opportunity cost, right? Like when yeah. I was in high school, the default was, if you're smart, you go to university. Yeah. That was like, there wasn't even another path, right? It's like, if you're not I'm as saying. smart, you go to college. And it's like, those are, it's either you take this side or this side. There's no other way. And, you know, I had friends or a friend that, instead of going into university, uh, went into a trade. So I went to Algonquin College, did a two-year program, learned a trade, started a business. By the time I went through six years of school, I had spent over $100,000, even in Canada, between room and board and tuition. Yeah. So I was in debt hundred grand. I was lucky because I did a professional program, so there was a demand for it. But I know people that did like a PhD in history and are work at a grocery store, right? And so the opportunity cost is both money and time. Six years, over $100,000. He spent two years, maybe 20 grand on school, started a business, saved all the money that I spent on school and all the time, built a business. So by the time I graduated from school, he had a successful business, had accumulated a good amount of wealth, owned a house, owned a business. And like, no one talks about the fact that the opportunity cost of university is forfeiting 
all of that money and all of that time to allow you to do maybe something else that you actually wanted to do. Right. And so like, we're just never taught that. Like I didn't have a guidance counsel ever presented to me like that. And if, you know, I'm kind of glad because I ended up where I am because of the path I took. But looking back, it's like, if I had to do it all over again, I wouldn't spend six years of my life in university to, to earn a piece of paper that said I knew something that I didn't even actually know and use very little of today. Uh, you and me both. Uh, it's I crazy. Tell kind of how, how old you are because uh, I had the same situation where high school said, go to this, do this, go to university. If you don't, you'll make a million dollars less in a lifetime. <laughs> and it turned out like one or two years after, like, oh, yeah, it turns out we have um, penury, um, a demand or a, an absence of tradesmen now. Okay, so go to college. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, you go to college a year, two years, whatever, and you start making a very fair wage, a very good income. Yeah. And you, you get, get paid the to skills. learn. Yeah, right? you get the skills to take care of your home, fix your home, build your home. That's fantastic. In, a, in an age where barter is going to become increasingly valuable, yeah, you know, five hours of a barter versus five hours of working at a grocery store. Yeah, pick pick your pick your service sector. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And have those five hours they worked at a grocery store be taxed at whatever rate, so you actually <laughs> don't bring home fucking anything. Yeah, oh, man, we can't escape taxes, can we? Well, I mean, we can. If you're rich, you can. Yeah. If you have a good yeah. lawyer, you can. But if you're an average person, you can't, and you just get milked. Funny how that works, eh? Yeah. Like you have a big legal document or tax code. I don't know how many pages it is. Does anybody know how many pages it is? Too many. And then you get someone with a little bit of money. You go to HR and Block or wherever you, or you do your own taxes. You get something back maybe. But if you're rich, you pay someone a nice hefty wage and then they, they go through these rules and they find out how they can save money and make themselves money in the profit, at uh, the process. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, it's like this <clears throat> weird language that we've created that creates a different class of person. And if they understand that language and can speak the language, they have a incredibly disproportionate advantage of succeeding in society. Yeah. Such absolutely. that the rules are straight up made in their favor because those kind of people are the people who make the rules. Yeah. And unfortunately, if you, you know, it depends on what we're even talking about at this point. Um, but if you're, if, if it's literally communication with people and having to specialize language so you can advantage yourself and the people around you, it just means that someone doesn't understand that language and what happens to them? Well, they're kind of left in the background or in the dust or, well, they're not being advantaged. And this is, this is fundamentally, it's kind of unfair. Sure. Um, yeah. I mean, these are, these are enormous obstacles to overcome. Uh, how, how do you, how do you help someone and you want to help them? And how do you even go about that when you have a flawed monetary supply to start with? Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I spent five years of my life trying to understand how do we solve this health problem? Like I was in the health, the sick system, let's call it, where people were coming to me thinking they were getting health advice. I was paid a bunch of money to earn a piece of paper saying I was a health professional, quote unquote. And I realized what I actually was, was someone who could diagnose and treat symptoms, which has nothing to do with health. It's straight up palliative. Right. I'm not trying to even find out the root cause or educate you, but I'm simply trying to treat your symptoms because so, I'm, I'm actually financially incentivized to continue doing that. Yeah. If you don't need my services anymore, I make less money. Therefore, I want you to be, get benefit when you come see me, but not actually get rid of the problem because then that gets rid of my income source. Super fucked up. Yeah, it's terrible. And not hard to see. You know, Charlie Munger has a great quote. Show me the incentive and I'll show you the outcome. Mm. And it's like, well, if you understand the game theory of how our sick care system works, it's very easy to see that eventually the inevitability with the way human action is directed is we all end up sick, incredibly sick, just before death, basically. We don't want people to die because then there's no more money to be made, but we want to keep them sick for as long as possible, 
not solve the problem, treat the symptoms so that we constantly have a customer. Mm-hmm. And it's not that these are evil people in general. It's that they're simply reacting to the incentive set that is built into the game theory of what we call quote unquote health. And it's deeply flawed. So I spent five years trying to solve the health problem. And then I started adopting this mental model where it's like a layer cake of problems in society. And each one is hierarchically derived from a deeper problem. And the health problem is like superficial, shallow problem. It's the easiest to see, but it's also uh, the, it's like many layers derivative of deeper problems. And, you know, it's like, to me, health and climate are at the top. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Health and climate at the top. Then you have education. In as much as health is fundamentally an education problem to solve. If you know how to take care of yourself and you know how to control your time, you can take care of yourself and be healthy. But if you're never taught how to take care of yourself, you're essentially left to the default that a disease-centric world creates around you. So you default to diseased if you haven't actually spent time understanding health. So health and climate... Then you have education. Below that, you have governance. So people in governance determine what education we get. And then the deepest layer of problems is money. Because money is literally what determines who gets into governance, who then determines what we learn in education, which then determines our health and how much we're fucking up the environment based on how little we know about the effects of our behaviors. So I immediately, when I started realizing that, I'm like, I'm trying to solve the wrong problem. Why am I having to put so much energy to convince people who are the luckiest people on earth, by the way, in Canada and the United States to take care of themselves? Why is it so hard to get people to take care of themselves? It's because money's broken. So that's why we're here. That's interesting. There's a lot of work, lot, lots of work with that. Um, do you have, do you, have you given this model a name? Then we could reference it. Otherwise, I'm going to call it a cake theory. I, I was going to say the layer cake of problems. So the let's go with, let's go with cake theory. Cake theory. I like it. Um, well, it's like any theory psychologist uh, you, you make it an argument or a statement and then you explain it and someone can counter it yes of course i have a i have a hard time to go against this uh, the environment's important your health is primordial uh governance education are, are in there whichever one comes first uh, it, it makes a, a difference if you have quality education and well, i mean we already know where education standards come from they're and then at the root of all of it is money. So I tend to agree. Uh, I don't want to agree with that, but since money, <laughs> neither do I. <laughs> yeah, but since money is, it, it is our, it, it is time. It is, uh, it's value. It's an exchange medium. Then yeah. So unfortunately, if if the layer cake of problem, the cake theory, is made this way, it's hard to argue against it because, from your perspective, and I would tend to agree with you, my perspective as well, that. Everything is built from the ground up and your foundation blocks are not good. And so yeah. good luck building up if your foundation blocks can, I don't know, not repel water. Yeah. You know, see how many winters you're going to survive with cracks and water going in there. So, um, yeah, I think it's, and it's a shame because there's so much energy spent on solving those other problems to do slight permutations just for talking points too, like on the political <sighs> level. So yeah. let's take, the, let's use this very problem. Money decides who's in government, which decides education which has consequences to our health and our environment. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, You you have talking points to get into power. All right. I am a political person now. I'm just pretending. We need better education. We need to fix our roads. We need to fix our health system. (laughs) Okay. What's the solution to this? Oh, this sounds great, Nick. I'm I'm going to fund for you. Of course. I mean, we literally do this every single election cycle in every single country as far as I can tell. And we're using these topics 
infrastructure, health, what have you. And we're, we're accusing one side of not doing it right. And so we're literally divided on the fundamental rudimentary part. So if we, if we removed rhetoric and talking points, and we can't because money is what gets us into power, and like how, how can anyone solve education with money? You're not going to tell me that we have less money now for the purposes of education than we did 50 years ago. You're not going to tell me that our ability to print paper has gotten worse. You're right. not going to tell me our ability to communicate information has gotten worse. I mean, in which world does that happen? So if these talking points are related to our existing budgets, which, I mean, I'm not going in the right sequence and all this, but the, the money is the problem in this. Right. You, you can't solve education with more money. You can't solve healthcare with more money. I mean, it'll help in certain situations, like if you need an MRI for whatever reason or a, a geographic area that doesn't have it. Sure, in that situation, I'll do the case, but if you're just going to burn money into a deficit or into more debt, what, what is that going to help you with, especially if you're incurring interest on this? And I would say it's not more money. More of the bad money will never solve it. Better, <laughs> mo better money. More of bad money, yeah. Better money solves this, I think. Because well, yeah. Yeah, well, we, we have a choice as a nation, in my opinion. We can either be a debtor nation or, or not. And, I mean, it depends how we break it down. Like, I, I suppose on one side, if we were, uh, if we really wanted to, we could be an investor nation, a true-to-form investor nation where we have a surplus of money because we've been wise and we've and we take our money, we spend it on things and we allocate it to whatever we want and we always have more. And we reap a benefit by investing it, whether that's in us or in others. But, you know, if you're, if you're successful in your investment, you have, you have more to work with. Or maybe you can be uh, something between an investor and the ultimate other end would be like an, a debtor nation. Well, we're definitely not succeeding as an investor nation, not in my opinion. No. So we, if we were to adopt a certain strategy, we could solve so many problems. Because if your population is healthier, they go to the hospital less. You need less of an infrastructure to take care of uh, problems that are avoidable. So it's all interrelated to the cake theory. So <laughs> it's, it's hard. It's hard to break to get away from that. Yeah. I mean, just look in the United States. Like, who's the president, and how did they become president? How much money did they spend? How many lies did they say? Who did? Who did not talk about education? Who did not talk about that? Sure. They're all going to solve it, and nothing gets solved. Not really. Yeah, because the underlying problem hasn't been solved. But for the first time, we have choice. We've never, you know, you and I are born in. Can were you born in Canada? Oh, oh boy. My, my family colonized this place. <laughs> there you go. We were, both, we were both born into a monetary system whereby we didn't have a choice yeah. of what money to use. You're told, you live in Canada, you use Canadian dollars. If you refuse to, we have guns or we'll put you in a cage. Whatever. You know, they use, for, they use a form of violence, which can be taxation, which can be anything. Yeah, um, but don't forget taxation. You have a choice for that. It's completely voluntary. Yeah, says who? <laughs> says who? <laughs> the Canadian Revenue Agency doesn't say that. I think they actually do say that, but uh, either way. I got to find that. I got to find that so I can quote it. Yeah, um, I mean, that. you know, here's the thing with taxes. I have nothing against paying taxes if I know that the funds are used wisely. And the lack of transparency and the lack of accountability for actually being responsible, it's like the ultimate moral hazard, right? You have no accountability if you misuse funds. You just create more of them. And if you break things, you just create more money to try and unbreak them by doing more of the things, more of the very things you did to break it. And so... I really think that it's like we're kind of coming to a precipice where multiple 
institutions and ways of uh, like mental models of how society works and has worked for hundreds of years, which actually served us well, right? Like it got us to this point. We're not all trying to kill each other <laughs> in relative terms. We're pretty healthy. Um, you know, you go outside and it's pretty nice. Um, so it got us here and there's, there's like merit to that, right? It's not like, oh, this is all terrible. Burn it all down. It's like, no, no, no. This was the best we knew until now. Things aren't working anymore. Those systems are designed for a world that wasn't this complex, that wasn't this interconnected. Um, and so now, now you're, we're seeing like multiple things. Like you have education, you have governance, um, you have all these, you know, you have healthcare, you have all these things that are essentially collapsing because they have simply not, they're simply not able to continue on living. They're zombies of a past time and they find themselves in a different world. And it's almost like, Basically, we all have to take mushrooms and just be like, how do we build a better world with creativity? <laughs> no, but we do need to, well, we do need not? to look at things from a more fundamental basis because trying yeah. to do things just a tiny bit different or a tiny bit better doesn't cut it when you have existential problems that are like deep as fuck. Yeah. So. Well, it's, and that's why if we go back to the cake theory and I guess we can add nation state to it because. Um, I mean, I know that Bitcoin is not a supranational idea per se, but it kind of is above the nation in the sense that I think it, it is, is global. universal. It, it's yeah. completely global. I mean, some states, some countries, I believe, are in the process of adopting or talking about adopting it. El Salvador adopted it as, I mean, it's a small country, 7 million, but they've adopted it as legal tender. So they are experiment zero. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, the, the potential on this is, it's hard to wrap the our minds around because if if we take the the cake theory and we apply every country as a cake theory a standalone one and it has developed inter cake <laughs> relations over <laughs> over millennia i like that and, yeah, yeah. and there are clear problems uh, on one country after another whether it's their health care or their their education or if they're actually at war or if they have a civil war or they don't get along with their neighbor they're uh, the cake next to them that has few to no connections but if an individual nation collapses for any reason, you know, they can't, they, I don't know. There's so many things involved with it. But as problems are continue to accumulate and monet monetary policy of that nation is related to it, there's always a, a backbone of, of Bitcoin that's there that a country can take in. Sure. Like during, um, even in the Soviet Union, their dollars weren't worth very much for uh, economic reasons but they had a black market zimbabwe had hyperinflation and their dollars were uh, time stamped but they used american dollars so there was always a, a medium that was there yeah, there's always a fallback exactly and so oh, i don't want to step on that wire that's great um so the, it's what's really interesting is as more and more people adopt bitcoin and the process of transactions become easier and inevitably bitcoin is going to become worth more and more and more i mean the day that apple accepts it as a trade I mean, watch out. It's going to be worth a lot. Yeah. Um, and the the, f the more people that use it for transactions versus people who hold on to it, that's going to make it more, I don't know if it'll make it more valuable, but it'll make it more useful. And once it becomes adopted more, um, like for me, I'm, I'm not in using it for transactions at this point. Right. You're using it as store of value. Yeah, yeah. But it's gold. <laughs> sure. Yeah. For now, at least. Um, I think that's the correct mental model to use. That's how I use it with rare exceptions. And I think... Fundamentally, the store of value curve, the store of value adoption curve is first and must be first. Yeah. 
because people have to believe this thing actually has value before they use it as a medium of exchange. Yeah. So the store of value curve happens, which we're like very at the very beginnings of. You know, people say, oh, Bitcoin's so expensive. I missed it. It's like, dude, we're like 2% into the adoption curve. Like we're early as hell. Mm-hmm. Store of value curve happens. And then with a delay of maybe like, I don't even know, five or 10 years, then you have the medium of exchange adoption curve. And they are, they have to happen in that hierarchy. You cannot have a medium of exchange that doesn't first act as a store of value. You just can't, right? Like we collected gold yeah, nuggets before we made gold coins because we had to agree that gold is valuable first. Yeah, we needed to peg it to something. Yes. Otherwise, you're buying pizzas with like 10 Bitcoin at one point in time. 10,000 Bitcoin, actually. I'm regretting it forever. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, at that time, it seemed like a good trade, right? Like these <laughs> things, it is what it is. Um, it, it, it goes up in value as more people are, like everyone is doing an A-B test with money at all times. Right. If you an A B test. So you're basically testing, you're evaluating the merits of this. If you have a choice, every transaction you do eventually becomes a choice of if I'm getting paid and I have choice, would I rather be paying Canadian dollars or Bitcoin? Would I rather pay for something in Canadian dollars or Bitcoin? And so every you know, I trust that as time goes on, people become more informed. They will see that the harder money, the one that preserves their time and energy better is Bitcoin. Yeah, naturally. And as people learn, they naturally transition over their wealth into Bitcoin. And the cool thing, I like how you said all the, the cake theory has a bunch of nation states that are intercake related because I really think it's true. It's like if one cake collapses, it's not a singular event in a silo. There's a global web of interconnected cakes. One falls, all the other one, like some cakes have a disproportionate amount of influence. Um, but I really think Bitcoin solved the fundamental base layer of the layer cake for anyone in any country that's willing to adopt it. Because it's on an individual level, but also on a nation level, right? Like I've adopted that new layer of cake in my life in whatever respect I'm able to do right now. I still need to get paid in Canadian dollars. I need to pay my bills in Canadian dollars. I hold Canadian dollars, but my savings account is Bitcoin. And as time goes on, the minute I get paid in Bitcoin is the minute. And the minute I can pay my bills in, in Bitcoin is the minute I stop ever accepting Canadian dollars or wanting to pay in Canadian dollars. So there's a big transition there. But I think the bottom layer of the layer cake has been solved, but not yet widely adopted. I think we're going to have to go through a lot more pain to realize that our current base layer uh, is flawed and governments are going to keep trying to grasp onto that control until they are simply unable to, which I think is an inevitability, but it's going to... Might be what we're looking at now. It's going to suck. The sad thing is, is like they could literally... If Canadian government adopted a Bitcoin-backed Canadian dollar, we would be the most prosperous and, and did it first. We would be the most prosperous nation forever hmm. i mean that's my opinion but well I mean, there's, there's a lot of we have so much water so much land we are, we're rich in virtually every natural resource i mean of course there's some we don't have but uh, space time and money and add to that good monetary policy uh, i think there's an argument to be made there there's a reason we're one of the richest nations in the world and yeah. one of the, we are going to continue to be for well, until something really wrong happens. I mean, I think we're going in the wrong direction right now, unfortunately. Oh, oh yeah. We but talk about that for a couple of weeks, I'm sure. Well, you want to hear a crazy stat that I heard the other day. So Canada has insane amounts of hydroelectric power. Oh, yes. This I can talk about. Insane amounts. So a stat I heard the other day, and I hope I don't fuck this up, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I got it dialed, is everyone talks about how much energy the Bitcoin network takes up. Mm-hmm. And they love to, that's like the most popular FUD, or it was for a long time. FUD is fear, uncertainty, doubt. And so everyone complains, Bitcoin takes up so much energy, it takes up like as much energy as a country. It's like, okay, that means nothing in relative terms because people don't understand energy dynamics. In reality, Bitcoin, the entire Bitcoin network uses 0.3% of the planet's wasted energy. Not the planet's energy, the planet's wasted energy that is currently not being used because we don't have an outlet for it. 
Bitcoin network uses 0.3% of that wasted energy globally. So what you're saying is we have to stop using Bitcoin now because it's an emergency. It's an emergency. You know, we, we can't right. be we can't be putting that wasted energy to good use. Are you kidding me? That's terrible. Not. It sounds like a <laughs> like an investment. But the stat the, the stat that I heard was that in Quebec alone, the province of Quebec, Canada, the entire Bitcoin network would take 50% of the of the unused hydroelectric power from the province of Quebec alone. The oh, entire network. So it could fuel the, the province of Quebec could simply switch on these hydroelectric dams to produce power because right now they have nowhere to, for the power to go. So they don't even turn the switch on. They could do that, fuel the entire Bitcoin network as it currently exists and still have half of their unused energy left to do something else. That's yeah. crazy. See, I wish I had more information so I at least push back and counter this at least a little bit. <laughs> uh, but I don't know enough about the actual uh, grid that we have. But I do know that Northern Quebec and Ontario and most of the country has tremendous um, hydroelectric dams. I mean, where I'm from, we're sitting, like the river that my parents are on, depending on how far up the river we're looking at and how down, there's at least uh, four or five uh, hydroelectric dams. It's like, okay, well, that's one river in northern Ontario, northern Quebec is <laughs> riddled with these. I mean, yeah. I know that northern Quebec has these incredible reservoirs that they've created, and you saw these photos of the explosives that they would require for this. is impressive, and it, it looks like, steps for giants yeah like a true to form giant not like a seven foot person which you're very <laughs> close to well you're not quite that close but um so i don't doubt that it, assuming everything you're saying is true i mean and i should say i got that from adam back who is one of the head guys at blockstream and i he's like a very big don't trust verify so yeah, yeah absolutely. I'm, I'm taking that on on um good onus that he did his research but yeah i think um this whole notion that Canada really could crush it and we're just going down the wrong path where we're digging ourselves deeper and deeper into debt. Uh, we're not really fixing anything. We're actually make, we're using the money that we're creating to convince each other to take a medical procedure that might not be in all of our best interests. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's so yeah, goofy, man. It's Jeez. so goofy. Are we timestamping this? Are we putting a date on this so everyone knows? Well, so Moscow time is the ultimate timestamp. Oh, that's right. That's right. Because if I say it is October, November 18th at 2.20 p.m., it's like... Well, what time zone, right? But the blocks of the blockchain um, are a universal constant where like block 7, 10, 3, 13 is a different time somewhere else, maybe on a different day, but it's everyone knows when that time. was. Yeah, it's, it's so that's why I use Moscow time. Interesting. So it's not only is it a, theoretically an improved monetary system, uh, it can also be an, an objective arbiter, arbiter of time. Yeah fascinating dude there's a guy called Gigi who's a beast in the world of bitcoin that's his like pseudonym and he did an a whole article about how bitcoin is time and how uh block height is actually a much better indicator of time because time is so relative anyway it just it melted my face i yeah. read it and i was like i gotta put this aside and read it later because it's too intense well, that's but it was really cool because i mean we're, what are we doing with time now so we're 2021 we're basing this off of the birth of jesus christ so bc um ad but we changed that, at least some people, to Common Era. Okay, and then we had different calendars. I don't even know which calendar we're using now. Okay, so why not? This could be sure. a, another calendar because, you know, in the... I'm not sure how these blocks are counted, but... Our, every 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes, okay. So Approximately... So it's imperfect because there's an element of... It's approximately every 10 minutes, but some blocks can be shorter, some blocks can be bigger. Depends on a lot of variables, but... Approximately every 10 minutes, a block happens and has been happening since the inception of 2000 in 2009. And it's funny because some people are, you know, I've heard different, um, you talk about BC as in before Christ. It's like, 
I'm hearing people throw around these different things like AB after Bitcoin, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. um, BC before COVID. Before and like, COVID, yeah, yeah, it's just funny how people are kind of making up their own <laughs> metrics, which it's like, yeah, I mean, BC was a different time than AC. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so much we can talk about. Am I supposed to be skeptical and try to break Bitcoin and be the person that says, that's it, Bitcoin's worthless now? And I'm no just going to get any. Okay, here's a good question for you. Because it'd be really convenient for me for it to drop in considerable value so I can dump some of my money into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it will always have, you'll always have those opportunities. Just like stash some Canadian funny money away and there will inevitably be continual opportunities to buy at cheaper prices. But here's the thing. If you bought at the all-time high in 2012, if you bought at the all-time high in 2017, looking back, both of them were smart moves because the all-time high of 2017 of like $20,000, at the time, you would have been like, fuck, it went down to like whatever, 12000 But looking back, it's like, well, I wish I would have bought in at 20000 because now it's 60000 That's right. So there's never a bad time to switch a shitty asset for a good one, although you really have to take it a long time horizon to really be comfortable with that. Here's a good question. What's the biggest source of resistance to you learning more about Bitcoin and putting more of your personal wealth into Bitcoin? Right. Well, if you, you want to go really do, hard, I'll do. challenge you on where is your <laughs> money stored and this is why Bitcoin's better. <laughs> okay. Uh, interesting. Um, well, I mean, we did talk about before COVID and after COVID. And I guess we're in the DC, the you know, CC current COVID. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I'm, uh, there's job uncertainty, not revealing my medical background. No one's business. It's illegal yep. to ask for it. P.S. <laughs> <You're> listening. <laughs> um, so that is a one reason. Sure. Uh, it's the biggest reason, frankly. And um, your immediate um, well, obligations are in Canadian dollars. So that well, would be absolutely. Yeah, I'm one of the people who bought in this housing market. Uh, it's, I I assumed things were going to normalize at the time. You know, the arrival of uh, these vaccines. I thought people were just going to go back to normal. You know, sit down in restaurants, have a good time, and not be. Uh, terrified from everything and you know i would have been able to afford my uh, my property with my my employment so with uh, employment uncertainty um economic uncertainties that's the the big one so I, I i need to put money i need to keep money in funny money that the bank's going to accept yep that's, that's fair so that's the that's the biggest one um yeah i think the big thing that i try and get across with people is that bitcoin is not everyone is going to have their own level of risk tolerance of how much money are they willing to put and also their own life circumstances that dictates how much money do I need to have available to me for the next month, two months, six months, right? Yeah. Like, do you have a family? What are your debt obligations? What is your job certainty? There's so many variables. But I think at the end of the day, everyone should have, and maybe this even reinforces the importance of this, everyone should have a savings mechanism, right? Previously, there may have been a savings account in a bank. Maybe it still is for some people, but that's not making you any money. Yeah. In fact, money you put in a savings account is essentially melting away faster now than it ever has been before. Yeah. Um, a crazy quote that I heard from Samson Mao, who's the also works for Blockstream. Blockstream is like a really big Bitcoin company doing great things, um, like literally pushing the technology forward in a lot of different ways. But he basically said that in Canada, um, more money has been created in the past 12 months than has been created in the previous 40 years combined. Of Canada? Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. We ran uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of deficit, whereas before <laughs> the coronavirus started, we were running about a, a $15, 20000000000 billion deficit. So uh, if Dude. you take that as a timeline, that's, that's what, 10 years in one year? That's pretty brutal. That's insane. That's it. Yes, 40 years. Decent. More money was created in 12 months than had been created in the past 40 years combined. That is just, that is a mind fuck of a stat. 
And it's not good. It's not a good thing. Oh, no. Absolutely not. <laughs> it means you just got robbed more of your time than anyone in our past 40-year history had ever been robbed combined, basically. Maybe not exactly because money was worth different things. But, yeah, I think... I just, I love to know people's, and everyone also, this is another thing. Everyone goes through their Bitcoin learning process at different speeds. And for me, it hit an inflection point where there wasn't much urgency. It was a casual curiosity. I kept putting little bits of money because I'm like, it seems like this is a good, hard form of money. The more I understand, the more conviction I develop. And then I hit this inflection point where it's like, I kind of just like got it. And the only way you can truly get it is by understanding the macroeconomic perspective to some extent right like how does money work how do how do how does this whole machine work as we use it right now and why is bitcoin better and what problems do does bitcoin solve and it went from being something that was i was curious about to something that was like okay this makes a lot more sense and the inflection point was where i realized every canadian dollar i hold is a liability and to not convert a liability into an asset when i have the chance right now is ridiculous so how few canadian dollars can i hold and my view switched from bitcoin being risky to Canadian dollars being incredibly risky, right? And Bitcoin being yeah, being yeah. Yeah, like mean, sound. Even even though in, like um, I was looking earlier, Bitcoin went down approximately ten percent in the last five days. Um, so there's still obviously some volatility. Yep. But if you take six months or nine years or however many years of Bitcoin increasing, <laughs> and you compare that to the devaluing of the Canadian dollar, then yeah, asset versus uh, liability. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. Um, no, my, my learning for Bitcoin is, is limited. And like I said, I, I need my cash for my own purposes for now. Um, what I think most people also don't realize is the, the tiny increments that can be acquired. So my favorite thing to recommend to family and friends is to get on it. Um, basically put something on autopilot and forget about it and put it at such a low, like the reality that we are, you can literally buy what could potentially in 10 years be a full salary for yourself for maybe a hundred dollars. That's, that's really hard to wrap your head around if you don't understand it. And the idea that putting $10 a week into, um, like canceling your Netflix subscription potentially and putting that money for Netflix. (laughs) (laughs) off the record <laughs> allegedly <laughs> well, i mean we um, all have friends who have netflix yeah sure yeah that's very true um i've told my friends not to give me their logins because i don't trust myself fair um i'll give my parents login yeah i don't want it <laughs> this whole idea that we you can access stats right now for an incredibly cheap amount such that in future a very small amount done regularly now and and kind of accumulated um and I think that is the strategy of Bitcoin. It's accumulation and aggregation strategy. It's not a trading strategy, right? Like that's a, that's a really hard one to nail, the, the trading strategy. If you accumulate $10 a week every week indefinitely without having to do anything by simply taking an hour to understand how to set that up, taking an hour to understand how to safely custody those, that amount, it just happens and you're accumulating the world's best asset as it's being monetized in real time without sacrificing. Like I think a lot of people think, oh, well, I I either put the bulk of my money in Bitcoin or I put the bulk of my money in my house or in cash. And it's like, well, you should maybe just put an incredibly tiny amount of money in Bitcoin on autopilot. So it buys at whether it's high or low, you buy a set amount. Um, And, you know, in not a very long period of time, like maybe five years, you're left with an incredibly huge amount of purchasing power simply because you decided early on, like the chronologically, it's really important to get an early on, on new technologies, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg got an early in Facebook because he created it, which is why well, he can he just take that from somebody else. 
Yeah, that's part of it. But if you got in on the earliest, if, if as soon as Amazon listed on the New York Stock Exchange, you bought 100 shares, you'd be a millionaire right now because chronolo- like time matters, right? Getting in early matters. And I think people don't recognize how early we are in Bitcoin's adoption cycle and how cheap it is to acquire sats right now compared to like the minute central banks get into this and countries and massive corporations and Apple, Google, Facebook buy Bitcoin, you and I will not really be able to afford it anymore. Even though you'll be able to buy $10 worth, it's going to be such a small amount when the price goes 100x from where it is now. So repeat this for me. A sat is a period in time where the, the next... No, a sat is, a, is the smallest denomination of Bitcoin. One Bitcoin, there's 21 million Bitcoins. Each individual Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million units called Satoshis or sats for short. Okay. So Moscow time that I quoted at the start, like the I Moscow time was... How much it got broken down to. Was 1731. That means 1,731 sats can be acquired for one US dollar. So that's an indicator of the price we're at right now wow. and the block height we're at. Okay. Well, this makes... It makes the fraction of my Bitcoin uh, bigger. <laughs> yeah. So denominate, make sats your unit of account. Instead of saying I have X amount of Bitcoin, say I have X amount of sats. Because if you have half that a Bitcoin, you have 500,000 sats. Um, so you're... No, 500 if million. I, if I'm understanding correctly, the, you're, you're predicting that at some point or another, whether it's central banks or uh, private citizens are going to be purchasing these at such a rate that the average, um, like the smallest sat, is ten dollars you said? So sat dollar, there's two figures that I that I kind of use in my brain sometimes. Sat cent parity is when one sat equals one cent, and I believe that's a million dollar Bitcoin. Sat dollar parity is when one sat equals one dollar. That's a hundred million dollar Bitcoin. I'm too visual for this. I'm gonna have to write this down. That's okay. But yeah, that's, so it's good to know new vocabulary to uh, yeah. conceptualize what Bitcoin is rather than well, it's as a, a unit. Yeah, it's not a very good, like the the Bitcoin, using Bitcoin as a unit account is terrible. Because like my dad told me this the other day, I can't fucking buy a Bitcoin now. It's so expensive. I'm like, dude, you can buy $10 worth of Bitcoin because you buy sats. You don't buy Bitcoin. Whatever denomination of funny money you want, you can buy in Bitcoin. And the on-ramps to do that are getting easier and easier. Like 10, like even five years ago, you couldn't buy $10 of Bitcoin. You have to pay a fee. You have to go through all these convoluted processes to get on exchange. Now, ShakePay, which is like this Canadian company, um, I have no benefit in saying this and I don't, I tried ShakePay, but I didn't end up using them because it wasn't as intuitive as the current people I use, Canadian Bitcoins. Um, if every day you shake your phone, you get paid a hundred sats. So they'll, you don't, all you have to do is set up an account. They give you a hundred sats for shaking your phone. And I believe every day, the amount of sats you get like compounds or something. So you can literally earn money by shaking your phone because a hundred sats is literally like a penny. So they have nothing to lose. And every day you shake your phone, you're thinking of Bitcoin. It's very smart marketing. No, well, I mean, you're giving somebody something, even though it's relatively invaluable. Yes. Relatively. Right now. It's a nano transaction. Shake. And so I guess that's more of a, the principle for this is to raise awareness that hey, yep. you can get some Bitcoin. Yeah. Because people so, talk about it. They're like, oh, you have to do, oh, just get right. shake pay. Well, who just isn't talking about Bitcoin? At this point? Well, it varies. I mean, a lot of people are talking about it, but I think most people are talking about it not with, not, not for their good reason, right? A lot of people talk shit about Bitcoin because a lot of people are scared of Bitcoin. Well, well how about that? Let's, let's talk shit about Bitcoin. What's sure. the worst thing you can say about it? I mean, maybe you don't want to, but. No, no, no. I, I mean, I, I just have to think. It's not a mental mode I usually get into. The worst thing I can say about Bitcoin is that it is a magnet for misinformation. 
And I think though, I think actually, no, I got a better answer. The worst thing about Bitcoin is that you have to understand an incredible amount about a vast array of topics to truly grasp it. I say that's a bad thing. And that's probably the, 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 the main obstacle for a lot of people is simply the hesitation to take responsibility for understanding it. I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think from an adoption standpoint, it's the biggest source of resistance, okay. I would say. That seems like, uh, that seems fair to me. I, I don't know enough about it to, to disagree. But what about, um, um, like, how secure is it? Like, if, if it's as valuable as it's uh, theoretically it's theoretical potential. Mm-hmm. Like what's stopping um, quantum computers uh, breaking these? So quantum computers could break Bitcoin. Um, I'll be completely honest. That's one of the, like the big threat vectors. In terms of how secure it is, you either have, you, you can parse that into two things, like personal security over one's own Bitcoin and network security of keeping the network secure, which is done by miners. Bitcoin gives the most powerful self-defense to the individual to defend their property, which is encryption. And Bitcoin is as safe to hold. The degree to which you understand how to safely self-custody your Bitcoin is the degree to which it's safe. If you're not paying attention and you're not really taking it that seriously, it's very easy to have your Bitcoin stolen, stolen or to lose your Bitcoin. And if that ever happens, no one's coming to your rescue. So I think that is, that's part of the fear element. I mean, there's a lot of custodial exchanges, right? You can put your Bitcoin on an exchange. There's a saying in Bitcoin, not your keys, not your coin, not your coin. So if you don't actually take full ownership of the keys, which is like the password to access your Bitcoin, yeah. um, then they're not really your Bitcoin. Just like the money in your bank account is not your money. It's the bank's money. You have to ask permission to use it and hope that they'll allow you to extract it. When you want it. Yeah, because let's say uh, Bitcoin jumped to a million dollars tomorrow. And, sure. Uh, I, one of the services I'm using, it's not my Bitcoin. It's their, it's, it's m- what, my cold storage, but their cold storage. And so I could withdraw it. But so what you're saying essentially is uh, if it was a million dollars tomorrow and they simply have enough to just grab it and be like, nope, go fuck yourselves. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good. That yeah. could happen. I mean, if you live in Greece, uh, that happened with you with the banks. They said, oh, you're not allowed yeah. to take your money out. So I remember that. Yeah, those rules are in place. I mean, they did that in Cyprus, and if I'm not mistaken, those rules are in place in Canada as well. So, yeah, I mean, if I want to take my money out of the bank, I'm only allowed to take a certain amount out at a, at each day, each 24 yeah, hours. Yeah. There is an un um, like a default setting to bank accounts where even if I wanted to, I have to go through a huge amount of hoops to do that, which is super weird because it's my money. I earned it. I gave it to you. You're not paying me any interest, but you're making shitloads of money off of my money by lending it to others at a high interest rate. It's so incredibly corrupt and unfair. It's, it amazes me. It actually pisses me off a lot to even talk about it. <laughs> um, but my Bitcoin, I mean, I can send my Bitcoin to a friend in Australia in one second. I could send him a billion dollars for 50 cents. Realistically, maybe you're, you're telling paying, me you're a billionaire, are you? I'm not a billionaire. Yeah, because I mean, you would have been the easiest target. But, um. <laughs> no, and I've, I mean... I talk about how I have Bitcoin and I've been accumulating from early on, but for the record, all of my Bitcoin is in multi-sig wallets where even if you got me at gunpoint and said, I want your Bitcoin, I couldn't give it to you because it requires two geographically dispersed signatures to come together at a single point in time in order for that Bitcoin to move. Yeah. So there's like different depths of cold storage that you go into. And that's obviously an excessive strategy. I don't have that much Bitcoin. I have enough that I feel more secure financially than I ever have before. Um, 
and I have enough that I can have time to learn about Bitcoin to hopefully help other people understand this thing. But I think from a security standpoint, back to what you're saying, yes, quantum computing could be a threat. I've heard people with deep knowledge talk about this and it's, um, you know, an asteroid hitting Earth is a threat. Yeah. It's not impossible. It's, it's, it's not impossible. It might be an infinitesimally small probability. Um, and so many things can change. Like if we're already colonized on Mars, maybe we see an asteroid coming, we just go to Mars. You know, like there's so many things that can change before that becomes relevant. And realistically, if an asteroid hits Earth, we're all done anyway. So there's no point in stressing about it. Yeah. Um, but how unrealistic is the arrival of an exceptional computer? You know, like um, the idea that things improve uh, exponentially. People use the expression, it's ex exponentially better. It's like, not really. Like you'll have a hard time finding a bicycle that's exponentially better than another. Right. In fact, you probably never will. Like the odds of seeing a bicycle that's yep. twice as good as an existing bicycle is probably zero. Most are iteratively better. Yeah. So the idea of a computer which does work, uh, not quite exponentially, but uh, they kind of do. I mean, like 15, 20 years ago, we, were, we weren't working with gigahertz like the way we are now. Like the average uh, computer is multi-core, uh, many gigahertz, uh, lots of RAM. Yep. Very powerful. Um, so the idea that an exceptional computer that arrives in the next 10, 20, 30 years is not unrealistic. I agree. Um, Here's what I would say to that. Quantum computing can, as far as, I, this is probably, this is limited because this is just my current knowledge today, but it can break it in two ways. It can break 256-bit cryptography, which I've seen sort of like a, a concrete, because the, the math of cryptography and probabilities gets so weird and untangible because like we've never seen numbers that big like beyond a trillion and quadrillion like quintazillion all these fucking weird sextazillion names don't really make much sense so a quantum computer could have so much computing power that it breaks cryptography it is, a, is able to go through so many calculations that it is allowed to go through all the probabilities and guess your private key you would need like i think something like a trillion um a trillion units of of and each unit is planet earth where every human has has the google level computing individually you need a trillion of those planets filled with people with individual computing power equal to google today a trillion of those planets and a, and something like a trillion years to achieve that level of computing so oh, that i gotta fight these numbers but um <laughs> but uh, i mean i don't know the actual encryption how it, it i'll send you the so video because it, yeah, it, it was like how secure is sha two is 256 bit encryption and it gives a really good uh outlay of it in a youtube video so i'll send you that and then the other one is a 51 percent attack and what you're saying is okay say they create a supercomputer but until then computing power is iterative where where everyone is able to like you have a pretty advanced phone your phone is more advanced than the space shuttle from like x amount of years ago yeah so everyone is having access to iteratively better technology. And the cool thing about the Bitcoin network is it's decentralized. So everyone having access to better and better computer geographically dispersed across planet Earth, but, but connecting their computing power into a single network to defend the monetary network. It'd be really hard for one, like if a country took all the computing power, if the US took all the computer, computing power in the United States, aggregated it, stole everyone's computers, plug them all in to attack Bitcoin, they couldn't because that still doesn't equal the computing power of the rest of the planet. Yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's an element on this that I just don't understand. Like, and I don't either. Like the idea to have a computers that are doing whatever they are to protect a level of encryption versus other computers that are trying to break encryption. It's kind of at odds with what I understand, but um, I mean, without, without me taking the time to fully in, inform myself, I can't speak on it. Um, but no, that's, I mean, to, let's just say that everything you're saying is, is, is fine. And it's, 
Some of my favorite podcasts, by the way, to listen to are the ones where people say, what could happen that would be an existential risk for Bitcoin? Because I actually, like, those are important things to know. I don't want to be blinded by the fact that like, oh, Bitcoin's great, it saves the world and nothing can ever fuck with it. It's like, well, it's getting way harder to fuck with as time goes on. Um, but inevitably, there, we have to talk about potential existential threats, even if they're super low probability, it's important to acknowledge them. So I respect that question a lot. No, 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 no it's good. Um, there's so much going on with that. Uh, so... To further to try and break it, uh, because I really don't know how this functions. Uh, so if an asteroid hits the country, uh, the world, and everyone dies, obviously Bitcoin's worthless. Um, but in a smaller scale, like an EMP... If an alien comes and discovers a node and takes <laughs> everyone... <laughs> if we stay in the realm of uh, realism. So a, sure. a bunch of EMPs uh, happen over continental North America. So all our computers are more or less worthless. Um, do... Comp- are the existing nodes or whatever they're called in Europe and around the world able to reconstruct it? Yeah, so if you destroyed all the computers, you would take out all of the computers that are protecting the network. And they protect the network by ensuring the reliability of the blockchain, which is, you know, the blockchain is essentially like a giant accounting ledger. Each page in this giant ledger is all the transactions across Earth that happened in 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes, the page is turned, we write a new page. Miners use computing power to earn the right to write that ledger, which is then verified by all the individuals on the network. So if you own Bitcoin, if you're on a Bitcoin node, you're verifying that what those miners... It's, mining is like a Sudoku puzzle. It's really hard to solve. It's really easy to verify. So as a node, you can verify that the miners thing is correct because it's really easy to do that. But to actually generate and uh, accumulate all those transactions and write them on the page is very hard. It requires a lot of energy. If you're the miner chosen, if your page that you created in that giant ledger is chosen to be the book in the global ledger, you get paid Bitcoin to do that. That is fundamentally Bitcoin mining. So take the EMP scenario and push it across uh, 99 point whatever percentage is required so that you have, what's the bare minimum to rebuild everything? One so node. I have a node over there. It's a tiny Raspberry Pi computer around the corner. A Raspberry that's Pi. literally all that's needed to reboot Bitcoin. Fascinating. Now, obviously you need to have, and, and the mining... Game theory of mining is all based on computing power. If there's no computing power, then on my laptop, I could mine Bitcoin because it would be very easy for me to earn Bitcoin because I'm the only one using it and I wouldn't have very many transactions to plug in there. So if one node survived and one human survived to run that node, Bitcoin would survive. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I mean, there's Faraday cages and stuff. So I mean, it's gonna, it sounds like people have thought about this. Yes. And short of aliens uh, doing whatever aliens do and uh, catastrophic <laughs> scenarios, we're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin's very anti-fragile. Like, one thing you brought up to talk about, and maybe let's dig into that, and then we'll wrap it up, because we're already an hour and 15 minutes in, which is pretty crazy, um, is the China ban. <laughs> right, you brought that up. Okay, the interconnected layer cake. The interconnected layer cake. So, maybe let's start with, like, what's your understanding of the China ban? How do you yeah, think it affected Yeah, perfect question, because I had to go back to an article real quick, and my understanding is it banned it, period. So, if that's accurate that's going to be my baseline. Is, is, is that what it is? Or did they ban the process of mining it? Or did they ban the process of using it as a method of exchange? They've banned many of those things at different time points in history. Okay. So they've banned Bitcoin many times. And realistically, it's like, if you banned Bitcoin and then you, the second time you ban Bitcoin, all you're doing is telling people you couldn't ban it. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, you're, you're, I mean, that's why I don't really understand what they're actually doing right because my understanding it's their period so if you have a means of accessing it 
then it's there, period. But that's where the, the consequences of it being banned. Yes. Like, are there legal consequences? Because if there are, and the government in China is willing to just grab a person and put them in jail. Then yep. That's a big motivator not to have some, even though it might have a lot of money to be made. But, you know, you, we were talking about how time is, is money, yep. right? If you don't have health and you don't have time, well, then you don't have a lot. So if the government's able to come and take your time away mm-hmm. because you wanted to have Bitcoin, well, then functionally, you can't really go very far until that country changes its mind. Yes, that's a really good point. So I think, okay, I think the first important point is that any, any country can ban anything in theory. Like Justin Trudeau could be like, I'm banning red wine. Oh, what a dick. And be like, fuck, Justin, <laughs> that's shitty, but okay. I'm saying I'm going to go buy some wine right after How this. are you going to take everyone's red wine away is the next question. So like in theory and application are very different, right? Any country can ban Bitcoin the, in theory. The reality of what actually happens is all they're doing is making Bitcoin harder to acquire for the people in their country. They're not banning it for the world. They're not stopping their people from accessing it. They're creating a black market and a more, they're, they're putting a risk premium on acquiring that asset, right? Like if you want in China and you want to acquire Bitcoin, well, the risk premium is that you're going to pay more because it's harder to get. And, and you're also taking a bigger risk such that if you're caught owning Bitcoin, you go in jail and you're, you're put in a cage for forever. So China can't ban Bitcoin across the world. They can make it harder for people in China to acquire it. China also banned Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook, Google, and I know for a fact there's a shitload of people in China that use those apps because all you need is a VPN and Tor and you can use it. And so I think, you know, Chinese people are extremely smart. They are. And to think that China banning Bitcoin is going to stop every person in China from acquiring the world's hardest asset is super naive. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I don't like bannings historically has never really worked. I mean, prohibition sure. has been prohibition and uh, obviously people still have access to alcohol. Go to Iran, go to Saudi yeah. Arabia. You're going to tell me there's no alcohol there? Good luck with that. Um, but, but they can ban the businesses. And that's the bigger point yeah. that I think you're, you can get at is when they, their last quote unquote ban was banning miners. They can stop miners from mining Bitcoin in China. And so that was a huge like moment in Bitcoin because that had serious implications. 50% of the mining power, mining hash power is in China. So when they did that, you'll see, if you see a hash power, which is like simply the compute, to, the total computing power of this uh, network, which is kind of climbing steadily. There's a um, just out of curiosity. About two, I think it's about 180 exahashes right <laughs> now. What that is, but okay. A hash, <laughs> a hash is, let me see if I can explain this. A hash is um, a mathematical Oh, I, I know what a hash is, but a, okay. a hexahash. I'll be like, we're yeah, so it's like, it's like, uh, it's like computer storage. So byte would be like a hash, mega hash, kilohash, and then all the way up. And then X, there's like P to hash and X to hash. It's pretty fucking big. It's huge. Okay. Um, well, if it's got as many computers uh, doing what, it's, what they're doing, then yeah, it'd be monumental. And they're specialized computers, right? Like, so there's things called ASICs, which are literally optimized 100% to do nothing but um, SHA-256 uh, computation. Mm-hmm. So these computers are literally just straight up optimized for doing the exact computation that Bitcoin requires for the next network security. But the hash rate dropped and the price dropped. And it was a big challenge to Bitcoin, right? It's like, what happens there? Do we just, the network became way less secure for other miners, it became way more profitable to mine because now you're the same amount of computing powers with a lot more money because there's less computing power in total. And that adjusts dynamically, which is like kind of part of the genius of the game theory of mining. But then it climbed back up because all those miners got shipped over to North America or Kazakhstan or like countries that are on the fringes of China. They found 
power to plug these machines into. And within like, I think something like six months, the, like the hash rate is now at pre-China levels basically. And so it only took six months to rebound or something like that. I might be wrong on the timeline, but China, like I think China banning Bitcoin will go down as the biggest on a geopolitical level, the biggest strategic blunder that China has ever done and will ever do. And I, and cause it, you literally just kill yourself by doing that. There's no benefit. I mean, clearly there's a reason China doesn't like Bitcoin. It, it's a communist country. They want control. They are the ultimate in controlling their people. You don't want your people to have free market money. Oh, I wish I had someone from China to defend China right now who could gang up on Yeah, it. I guess it's not fair for us. No, though. no, no. But um, I, I, was, I was reading a similar take on it, how this is going to be seen as a, a monumental problem for them. Yeah. But at the same time, <laughs> I mean, we can go down this rabbit hole for sure. But the, if, like you said, theoretically, a nation can ban anything. Yes. And there could be consequences to whatever's banned. Uh, you know, Surely there will be. Yeah. Um, so let's, I mean, I guess there's an argument to be made that this could be a form of an Iron Curtain. Like, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with the Iron Curtain reference. I'm, I'm not familiar. Like, unpack that just a tiny Certainly, bit. Certainly. Uh, so when the Soviet Union existed, uh, the, the Iron Curtain was where the division was. And so there was uh, difficulty travel, uh, no trade, things like that. So if China, like it or not, is a, a competitor, unless you have a different uh, narrative that you're espousing, um, if they ban successfully and the more territory they control, it's a form of an Iron Curtain. Sure. Because, I mean, the black market existed in the Soviet Union and people still did black market stuff all the time. And just like uh, Bitcoin still being used in China, I'm sure. But uh, the geopolitics of who's going to be the world hegemon is everyone to see at this point so that's why it's interesting because it could be a huge blunder for china to to do this but it might be a boon because in their their philosophical system they don't want to exaggerate the poor from the rich even though they obviously have huge divisions communism's so. never worked like <laughs> I think we just, just like history has taught us many lessons it's never worked no one's made it work once here's a question i would ask you what if we replace the word bitcoin with the internet if we replace the word Bitcoin with internet. Because I actually see them as fundamental equivalencies where the internet is the world's information network. Bitcoin is the world's monetary network. Mm. If China banned the internet, how do you think that would go for China? They created an iron curtain. Well, they, would, they already have one. Like internet is just, it's just speak for connected networks. So it's liter, literally inter-network. So <laughs> that's how we're... That's They're basically we're isolating their cake, right? It's yeah. like they'll still have their own intranet. But it, even that... Um, like, yeah, you can use VPNs to access certain things, but all the traffic is going through their routers. And so theoretically, there could be some some way to to block certain things. So then again, if it's all encrypted, and I don't about, know. What I, about satellites? Like if you have a satellite dish that you put up in, in the, the satellites mountains. Satellites are pretty easy to take down, actually. <laughs> oh, in the mountains, though. Okay. No, you have a satellite dish in the mountains in a random place that no one knows you exist, and you're plugging into Starlink. Elon Musk satellite constellation or some satellite that you get and you get internet without ever needing a cable to come up from the ground without ever needing an internet service provider from China. Like people are, and, and the other thing too, what if you had a cell phone, you live in China and your friend lives in Kazakhstan and you text your friend in Kazakhstan who you trust and say, I want you to buy me Bitcoin. Here's my wallet address. And your friend in Kazakhstan buys it for you. You own Bitcoin because the, the crazy mindfuck about Bitcoin is that your Bitcoin 
Bitcoin lives everywhere and nowhere at the same time. You do not hold your Bitcoin. What you do have are the keys that allow you to access Bitcoin. So if you have access to the internet and you have your key, you can ac have access to your Bitcoin, but it's nowhere and everywhere at the same time. And so, you know, like for example, people in China, oftentimes will send, for example, their kids, like the house that I used to rent is owned by a Chinese person that lives in China. Most likely because they wanted to have a hard asset that doesn't get, like if the Chinese currency is constantly getting devalued to main, remain competitive with US trade so that they're always undervalued and it's always in our best interest to buy cheap shit from China because their currency is constantly sliced down while also slicing down the ability of Chinese people to accumulate wealth on a, in a relative global way, then they just buy houses in Canada. Right? Like, why do we have a foreign investor tax in Toronto and Vancouver? It's because all the Chinese people are buying up Canadian property because it's the only way they can hold the value of their money. And it's a loophole they found, right? They send their kids to school. And when I went to Western in London, Ontario, Chinese kids, Chinese people were buying multi-million dollar mansions and like Lambos and Ferraris. And their kids were going there because that was the best way they could hold the value of their money. Or launder it. Or launder it. You know, so they, they, the point is they find ways, right? Oh, that's you true. There's no, there's certain things you just can't stop. Yeah. And I don't disagree with that. Um, so China can ban Bitcoin, but it can't stop Chinese people from accessing Bitcoin. Uh, it can stop miners from being in China, but it can't stop the rest of the mining network around them globally from expanding and taking up that slack and taking the advantage that's garnered to miners. And, you know, China can ban, China can ban a lot of things, but one, th like humans are very creative and there's often technological solutions to whatever barriers that come um, and you can literally text your friend and send, if you can get money out of China, you can text your friend, they buy Bitcoin for you, send it to a Bitcoin wallet, which you can access on your phone on a Tor browser with a VPN and you have Bitcoin mm -hmm. like Li Xinping or whatever is it. What's the, what's the president's name? Oh, I, I can yeah. just say Xi Jinping, but he can't do shit to stop you from getting that Bitcoin is what I, what I'm alluding to. If you go on a trip to America to see the statue of Liberty, you can buy Bitcoin. No one knows. You're not, they can't like strip it from you. When you go back, you can memorize 12 words and bring around a billion dollars in Bitcoin everywhere you go. No one could stop you. It's pretty hard to stop. Well, you convinced me on this. I mean, <laughs> uh, there's, I don't, I don't, like I said, I don't know enough on how to break it. I assume that, I mean. I love that. That's where you went first though. Like, how do you break this? I want to know the real shit. How do I, can this be broken? How could it happen? Is that a, a legitimate risk that I should consider? And like, those are the important questions to ask. Well, you, you mentioned it right in the beginning. Um, you yourself have multi-signature to move your Bitcoin. Okay, so you have that kind of thing. So there's always the physical security. The, the first way to break it is to break a person. Sure. Uh, you can literally break them or you can just spy on them. Yeah. So $5 wrench attack. But if, like, <laughs> there's so many subjects on this. And because I'm so ignorant on it, I, I don't want to broach certain things and sound like a complete nincompoop. <laughs> I, I don't even know who the inventor is. And I don't even think we acknowledge if the inventor is the real person or if we've ever had a, a real interview with that person. And then there's always the ideas of... Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, you'll never had an interview. He dropped off the face of the earth shortly after Bitcoin. Well, and then is, is this out. even real? Is, it, is that a real person? Uh, Here's my question. Does it matter? Uh, uh, depends. It depends. I mean, this is why going back to China banning it, um, like what if there's an exceptional backdoor to Bitcoin that is just known to its creator? And China, for example, created it. And I'm, this will sound ridiculous because, again, I'm, I'm working with absence of information, so don't uh, roast me online for not knowing. Well, let me put a pin in this right now. Bitcoin is open source. Everyone in the world can go and review the code. And if, you, if, if, if the code that you're running 
is something you can review yourself firsthand. Obviously, you have to be literate enough in code to be able to review it. But there's a lot of people, a lot of really advanced um, developers and programmers that literally go in and review the code. And it's open source. So if there is a backdoor, you'd be able to see it unless it was so covertly hidden in there. And it's actually Mm -hmm. simple code. It's very simple code. I've looked at it. I don't really know what it means. I see some words that like, oh, there's the there's the um, supply cap or there's the um, difficulty adjustment with mining. Like I kind of see words, but I don't really understand that the rest is just Chinese to me. But the fact that it's open source means anyone can verify. No, that's true. So that's a hard part to put a backdoor in. Yeah. No, that's why, like I said, I'm working with an absence of information. So I should uh, be careful. No, no, but I like this because that's, that's a good assumption to make um, until you're proven otherwise until better information comes about that would disprove that as a viable um, danger then that should be something you're thinking of. Keep, keep, keep sending them. <laughs> uh, well, because that, that simple idea can be pushed uh, pretty far because then the, the more other countries adopt it, the more, um, the more they can be uh, taken advantage of because they're getting rid of uh, classical economic ideas. But again, like I, I don't know, so I, don't, I, I simply don't know. Um, one really good thing that I heard recently was this whole thing of like, well, no one knows who Shitoshi Nakamoto is. That seems kind of sketchy. Why did he disappear? Does, you know, like... We should know, right? We we're, If you're using Bitcoin, you should know who created it. And I heard, um, I think it was Saifuddin Amus, I heard him say, who invented the wheel? <laughs> I like, we, let's equate Bitcoin to the wheel. Well, I mean, it's a, a, the wheel is a creation that has value. If it didn't, people wouldn't use it. It's a tool, right? And we use wheels, I use wheels every day. I don't know who created it. And to be quite frank, I don't give a shit who created it. All I care about is, does the wheel get me from point A to point B reliably? If it does, I'm going to keep using them. I think Bitcoin's the same way. Wild. So it's like the year is 2316 uh, Bitcoin time, not common era. <laughs> and uh, people are discussing, where did Bitcoin come from? Yeah. And they're like, oh, we have all these oral histories on this. And it would have been Ronald McDonald. And it was t- we were told he had face paint <laughs> at that. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's like, oh, who cares? At least my money preserves its value. So I don't care who created it. Yeah, but that's, uh, there's so many things to explore on this. It's never ending. Because like you said, we're in the early adoption phase of it. So Very early. Like, I think that's one thing I really try and emphasize these days because I've, I've kind of had the insight myself as to how truly early we are despite the price being so high. And one of my favorite kind of concepts to dive into is this whole idea that we have an entire ecosystem that's about $950 trillion worth of assets globally. You know, you have some U.S. dollars, you have bonds, you have real estate, you have equities, you have all of these layers in the layer cake of money and traditional uh, assets. And as we go through this, as as fiat starts to kind of implode and central banks print the shit out of money and they debase it to the point of like being unrecognizable, like I'm talking like Weimar style where you have a wheelbarrow of money and the wheelbarrow is worth more than all the money in it. When we get to that point, Bitcoin is like this heart, this core of energy, like the core of the sun. And the more it absorbs these inferior financial products um, because it's simply just a superior alternative and people would be irrational to stay in a bond that's negative yielding and not put that money into Bitcoin, right? They have to go through these things to adjust their pensions have to be able to adjust their charter to actually invest in Bitcoin. So there's a time period there, which is cool because we all get to front run all the biggest money corporations in the world right now, whereas usually it's the other way around. They front run us. So Bitcoin's this core of energy as it's absorbing inferior financial interest, and it's only worth a trillion dollars, by the way. Bonds, negative yielding bonds are $130 trillion. So if all Bitcoin did was absorb negative yielding bonds that make absolutely zero sense, it would go 130x its current price because it would absorb $130 trillion of the value. As it absorbs these inferior financial instruments, 
it, its gravitational pull increases. And so it starts to pull more things until there's nothing left to pull. <laughs> and <laughs> there's so much to explore on this. And that's like, that's a pretty crazy thing, right? Just the fact, if you understand bonds at a superficial level and you understand there's a hundred trillion dollars in negative yielding bonds, and that makes zero sense to hold if you're a rational human being who's incentivized to increase purchasing power, then you understand that how really early we are at a trillion dollars. Um, so yeah, unless you got, unless you got any final points or final things you want to touch on that might be, and I'm, I'd love to do a round two at some point. Cause as you, <laughs> as you learn, if you continue learning about Bitcoin, you'll have more things to talk about. You have more questions, no doubt, more skepticisms. And, uh, I'm still learning about Bitcoin. Like I still, you know, I know more than I used to know, but I also have so much I don't know in these conversations I find very helpful because I still get to kind of hear the perspective of someone who's at an earlier phase of their learning and hear all the hesitations. Um, but yeah, back to what I was saying is like really nailing that we are so incredibly early right now. We're basically like extreme early adopters of the internet where you had to know command line prompt to use the internet. That's where we are in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. And that gives a huge opportunity to everyday people like a plumber, an electrician, a bus driver to start to buy small, like 10 bucks a week of Bitcoin on the off chance that it does go to where it can potentially go. And then you have companies like publicly traded companies like MicroStrategy that have five or no, now I think it's like $7 billion worth of Bitcoin. Tesla owns a billion and a half of Bitcoin. Like it's being de-risked actively at all times as companies start to learn this and acquire it because it's simply a better form of money than what they currently have put their money into. So. Nope, that's, that's a, I don't have any final point. I mean, all I have are scenarios to discuss, but we've, we've talked uh, at length. I, I'm satisfied. Amazing. Well, Nick, thank you for stopping by the Bitcoin Stoa today. And to everyone listening, thanks for being here and listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, you can support the project by heading to bitcoinstoa.com and sending some, QR, some stats to the QR code on the page. Other than that, we'll catch you in the next episode and ciao for now.